This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. podcast episode 267 of uh, the craft beer and bring podcast for the next couple of tuesday episodes i've reached out to recent gold medal winners at the great american beer festival to talk about the creative and technical decisions behind their winning beers think of this as a couple of mini episodes packed into one bigger episode focused just on some beers and brewers that i think you'll be interested in hearing from in this episode i first talked to dustin baker of roadmap brewing in san antonio texas about their gold medal winning international style pilsner they call all right all right all right which also scored a 95 in our 2021 lager issue. I've known Dustin for a while, and I think uh, you'll get more of the backstory through our conversation. Then I turned to Adrian Garrett, head brewer for Precarious Beer Project in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, for a conversation about their gold medal winner in the experimental IPA category, the Cold IPA Polar Bears Toenails. We'll get into those conversations in a second, but before we do, it's last call for Brewers Retreat tickets. Only two left is the time of this recording. So if it's on your 2023 brewing bucket list, go to brewersretreat.com, lock that in while you still can. Also, if you're brewing, planning, and seeking a well-rounded program to help you launch an effective and successful brewing business, check out breweryworkshop.com for info about our upcoming Brewery Accelerator in Fort Collins next February. We typically do two a year. I think we're just going to do one next year because we've also got this Brewers Retreat on top of it. It's uh, it's a very useful event, something we've structured to help you understand what you don't know about launching a brewery. And we pull in some uh, really talented and smart people uh, into big conversations that will help you learn what you need to know to effectively launch a brewery. AccuBrew is a revolutionary fermentation analysis tool unlike anything else on the market, giving brewers unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. AccuBrew helps brewers confirm consistency and avoid problems from batch to batch from your smart device. You can track and compare sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity and use that information to continuously improve your process. AccuBrew goes beyond a simple measurement tool. With the AccuBrew system, managing your process and people has never been easier. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. Now offering Dextrin Malt to help you boost mouthfeel and haze in your IPA or to show off a jiggly foam stand on a pills. Available exclusively through BSG at bsgcraftbrewing.com. For this first segment of our GABF special episode of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, joining me is Dustin Baker from San Antonio, Texas, and Roadmap Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Dustin. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Well, I've known Dustin since 20, I think it was 2017, right? Um, Dustin came up to our Fort Collins Brewery Accelerator back in 2017 uh, while still in the brewery planning process. Uh, we became friends. We followed his progress. Um, and over the years, it's it's been fantastic to watch how things have grown uh i got down there and saw the brewery in person met up with them in the in 2021 when we were down in san antonio filming a video class with marcus baskerville at weathered souls um so you know dustin and, and then of course as i was thinking about it's like all right all right all right this beer that you just won gold in their national pill gold medal for at gbf at uh an international style pilsner 
Uh, you actually sent up to our judges, and we reviewed it back in 2021. Our, our blind panel gave it a score of 95, clearly prefiguring or suggesting that there was something special to what you're doing there. Um, so I want to talk about that beer. All right, all right, all right. Your uh, your progress, uh, you know, the way that you've developed and iterated on that beer um, and what you know steps you've taken to get it to a point where it certainly is gold medal winning. But first, why don't you give us a little, just a short background on the brewery and uh, where you came from, which, what's driven this and, uh, you know, where you all are today. Awesome. Yeah. So we, uh, we did meet up in uh, Fort Collins in 2017, I guess it would have been. And uh, so Roadmap's been open since September of 2018. Uh, we're a 100% taproom-based brewery. So uh, we'll do about 700 barrels this year all through our building. Uh, that's where we want to keep it. That's where we like it uh, for business reasons, but also quality control. We can pull something if we don't like it. We don't have to do a bunch of hoops to, to get the beer. Uh, yeah, so we're still a small team. It's just me, uh, one other brewer, and then we actually just recently hired an assistant brewer on production side, and then we just run five people on the taproom side, seven days a week, uh, just chugging along. Uh, we do produce uh, a very wide range of beers. Um, we joke that we feel like a logger house at times because it always seems to be tying up our tanks when we need something else on tap, but... Uh, we do everything from Pilsners to hazy IPAs to, and the end of this week, we're releasing a kettle sour with sour patch kids in it, which is ridiculous. But at times you gotta, you gotta do something fun to change it up for the, the people. You're playing both ends of the spectrum there. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, so your, your lager program, I assume given that this is uh, not necessarily designed as a, you know, purpose built lager brewery that you're, you're fermenting in uh, cylinder conical fermenters that kind of do duty across the, the beer spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we take our lager program pretty seriously. Uh, so I'll write just one gold at JBF. We also won for our dark lager, at world beer cup, uh, a bronze, uh, back in May, which was exciting. Uh, it, I do definitely wish I had some horizontals and might speed up the process a little bit. Uh, but, but it's not necessarily the case of what I have. Uh, so we usually try to go very slow and, and, and take our time with them as much as possible. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Our Pilsner, uh, is actually the only beer that we double brew at the moment. Um, because of the turn time taking so long, uh, we, we sell through it much faster than we can produce it. Uh, so that is the only beer that we're we're currently double brewing. Actually, as of right now, at this moment, Daniel's downstairs brewing uh, the second batch of today's brew. Amazing. So you've got, uh, you know, you're in, in lager country there in Texas and San Antonio. Um, there's a number of fantastic award-winning, medal-winning lager brewers around there. Of course, just an hour away up in Austin, you've got ABGB, you've got Altstadt, you've got Live Oak. I mean, there's just, you know, real ale, tons and tons of fantastic lager breweries in that that part of texas that you're in um you know so then setting out to to make lager in a compelling way number one you had great inspiration but number two you also have a lot of competition and you got to keep up um talk to me about the creative process that went in as you decided to you know start creating a pilsner that was going to become the, a kind of uh, uh i wouldn't maybe not core or flagship but uh, a significant part of your lager offering for roadmap yeah, it uh, it is our it is very much a flagship. We have it on year round. Um, it's our top selling beer by a pretty wide margin. Wow! Uh, okay. But it, it it is really really cool to have the inspiration. You know, but, to be even. By the way, 
it's great to win a medal for a beer that's yeah. like core beer yeah. it's on year round so yeah. many folks do that with a beer that uh that doesn't you know that's not as a uh, you know key to their their overall product strategy you, you nailed it on that one yeah we were excited uh saturday morning when we found out we won and it was for that beer because it's always on tap and we knew when we opened the tap room later that day that we could you know give it to the people who were asking uh, then I think two days later, me and our other brewer were having a bit of a uh, panic attack. Like, oh, well, we don't really need this to sell any faster than it already is. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is really cool. Uh, you know, Swifty up at ABGB won the gold in the very next category at GABF. And just to even, I mean, be considered in that level is pretty awesome. Um, it's a it's a type of brewery that I look up to. Uh, Dusan over at Live Oak, they do great great beer up there uh i wish i had some of the toys that they get uh but they take that slow and and let it do its thing method as well uh i mean for us i think there's no coincidence that all these great lager breweries are in south texas because it just fits the heat it fits the culture it fits the the environment of the beer scene down here so so perfectly uh so when we first opened in 2018 i had told myself we won't do lagers because uh, I didn't envision that it'd be worth taking the time to do it right. And then as I uh, grew into my professional brewing career, I, I started drinking the ABGB industry and, you know, going up and getting the pre, pre-war pills at uh, Live Oak and, and really saying, man, this is worth the, worth the effort and time. So that's when, uh, that's probably about six months after we opened that we started investing into the idea that this could be worth it. Uh, and that's actually about when we brewed all right, all right. Uh, all right for the first time uh, it was probably six months into opening and it's been on our tap wall ever since uh, it's tweaked a little bit uh, we've we've kind of uh, found parts of it that we liked as uh, you know try to get as much reviews honest feedback as we can uh, from brewers and from people like yourself uh, to try to try to subtly change always evolve. Where to, let's talk about that evolutionary process where did you start yeah so I mean I think I I I take this approach to a lot of our beers, uh, which is ironic because I did just mention a Sour Patch beer, which it's fun, but uh, we we generally try to keep it simple, stupid. Uh, So we started off very simple, Uh, you know, Saws hops only, uh, Pilsner malt, 100% Pilsner malt. And then uh, I'll give a shout out to Imperial Yeast because they gave us a a sample pack after uh, CBC. And then uh, that's worked out for them pretty well because it is now the the core lager strain we use um and then over time we started to started to try to tweak a little bit we uh we're about 85 percent pilsner malt and 15 uh carafoam now uh just as we try to build a little more body and head retention into it uh is there a specific pilsner malt that uh, that you lean to uh we do stick with just vironman uh they're uh just standard pilsner um mm-hmm. If I'm honest, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of financial reasons for that. Uh, there's also the fact that at our scale, I don't have to worry about uh, not being able to find it. Um, right, right. We can't. We're not buying super sacks, but you know, we've got plenty of breweries around here. If we're a bag short, uh, that we can get it, and it's not feeling like I'm sacrificing quality of any kind. So, and then you've mixed in. You said some carafoam into the into the blend. Yeah, yeah. So we started off uh, 100% Pilsner grain bill, uh, and that was more because you know we we wanted to try to keep it simple and let the ingredients talk for themselves. Uh, as we slowly started to tweak and, and really kind of up our own standards, so to say, 
we were looking for more of the minute points in a Pilsner that uh, that really makes it world class. Uh, and so the first thing we saw was, was some foam stability, some some head retention, and and a little bit of body without uh, without changing the flavor. Uh, so we we slowly started adding that in, and then it was over time uh, we just kind of ended up at fifteen percent, um, largely based on the fact that uh, that's a nice even bag for us. <laughs> Uh, sure, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not gonna, not gonna lie to you. There's deep, uh, there deep are, science in this one. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of science that, uh, that happens on the brew deck. But every once in a while, you say, "Hey, the difference between 12 percent and 13 and 14 percent really isn't that big of a deal if it means that I don't have a partial bag of Carafoam laying around." Uh, so, yeah, we we slowly moved it up there. Um, I know and some, some of this, you know, right? Some of this, you know, is problem solving, right? Because there are yeah. other, you know, you can do take some other steps to do that. Um, you could use, you know, some more complex mash regimen potentially um, yeah, and going have, through that to achieve that. But of course you also have some equipment constraints with, uh, with brew house. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we're pretty constricted on the brew house side. It's a single infusion mash. Uh, so, uh, we can't do a lot of the other things we would love to do. So we have to play with the toys that we're given. Um, and, and so we, we immediately went to the, the grain, uh, itself uh we mash at 152 uh and then bring it up slightly with uh with a sparge but again if i had a steam jacketed mash time i'd love to do steps um we've never done a decoction mash um again that's largely because of uh equipment restraints uh, we theoretically could um we've basically done accidental ones where we where we've collected into the kettle and we've we've realized we forgot a small percentage of a of a dark grain so we had to basically take what we collected out of the kettle and run it back over uh so we call that a quasi concoction uh, but never with our pilsner if that happens so that's interesting, but I think that that's a it's a point worth making that uh, you've now won a gold medal on a single infusion pilsner without step mashing with no decoction, you know. But have again solved for some of that kind of you know body and technical problems by you know looking at ingredients and approaching that in a slightly different way. Yeah, and I think our lager program will show that in a lot of ways because um, we we don't have as much control on the brew house side as so many other brewers do, but we have equally as much control on the fermentation side. Uh, so, so we really lean on, you know, the yeast and the, and the fermentation process to, to give us what we want. Um, you know, there's even small breweries have control on the cold side. And I think that a lot of times people think of brewing a beer, whether it's a lager or an ale, they say it's in the fermenter, we brewed it. It's like, no, for us, for all right, it's, you know, two or three months. It's usually closer to two and a half months. That's like, all right, well, we still got to babysit this, this, um, so we ferment pretty low. We ferment at 53. Uh, so it's not low for a lager, but it's, it's a true lager temp. Uh, yeah. no pseudo, no pseudo in front of the word lager. Uh, and you mentioned that Imperial is your yeast, but, uh, you know, is there, which is there a specific lager strain for Imperial? Yeah. So we use, uh, it's L 28 or Kell yeast. Uh, we really enjoy the, uh, the sulfur that you get from it. It's not overwhelming, but it's, it's definitely there. Um, and it, it does define, all right, all right, all right, uh, from our other dry hop pilsners. Uh, we do use 3470 a lot on uh, on some of our dry hop stuff, um, largely because we don't want that sulfur coming through. Um, we want the hops to speak in that beer. 
but all right, all right, all right is really all about the letting the yeast characteristic uh, play out, clean up, and uh, we don't want to mask it. We don't want to hide it with other stuff. Sure, sure. So before we get into that more deeper into fermentation, let's like hot side hopping regimen, pretty standard. Uh, yeah, it's pretty standard. I mentioned earlier that uh, we used to do 100% saws, uh, and then again, there's parts of running a commercial brewery. Uh, many of your listeners know that you just you kind of can't do what you do as a home brewer or what. Uh, so now we do bitter with Magnum, uh, and then we do a whirlpool of saw. Uh, we hit you know theoretical whirlpool. 24. Yeah, whirlpool. Okay. Yeah, you ever heard of that? That's crazy. <laughs> uh, I never heard that word before on a podcast. Um, sure. But why, you know, for, for a, you know, a Pilsner like this, why, why push everything back into the whirlpool instead of grabbing, uh, you know, additions further up? Uh, largely cause we didn't want to lose any of the sauce characteristics. Uh, and then we, we lean on Magnum to do all the, all the bitterness. Um, it is lightly bitter. I mean, it's, it's theoretically 24 IBUs. Uh, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big stand, uh, big guy on theoretical IBUs because I think that it's, a uh, it's a, a statistic that beer consumers get a little too caught up on. Sure, sure. Um, so then you you're you're hitting your bitterness numbers on the on the top, and then you know that kind of sauce comes in in the whirlpool, you know, in a kind of a smaller yeah. dose just to kind of give it some character and flavor. You know, about you know how I mean it can't be a significant amount of sauce then. No, it's uh, it's like what equates to about two pounds, depending on the alpha acids. Uh, and then it's like a less than a pound of magnum at the top for, and we're a, we're a seven barrel brew house. We usually, uh, on a single turn, we'll yield around eight and a half out of the kettle for that beer. Um, and then we, we'd like to yield at least seven barrels out of the fermenter. Uh, sure. Sure. But so then let's, so then let's talk about that fermentation process. You, you ferment at 53, you, you know, keep it pretty cold in a you know, typical traditional lager fermentation. Um, you, you know, but you're also still working with, uh, you know, the cylinder conicals that you have. Um, you know, what's, what does that fermentation typically look like? And, you know, where are some of the, the problem or pain or caution points that you all pay a lot of attention to through that fermentation process where, you know, stuff is happening and you've got to be, you know, more careful and attentive to it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that great loggers can be brewed in any tank. Uh, I think ABGB is great proof of that. Uh, oh hell yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, and we really we really try to focus on the minute points. Um, and that's you know the start of fermentation will knock out as close to fifty three as we can. We're usually around fifty five pitch yeast. Uh, you generally know that when you walk by that fermenter with that particular yeast strain that it's picking off pretty well because it's going to smell very sulfuric right in the beginning. Uh, so our noses will generally tell us uh, when it's time to get like a true second gravity reading on it uh, a couple days in. Uh, we generally will ferment about 10 days uh, before we feel that we need to really be concerned at, at that point. Uh, and then at 50, when we're about a degree and a half to two degrees uh, from expected terminal gravity, we'll uh, start bumping it up in temp uh, all the way up to 60. Uh, it rarely ever gets there, if I'm honest, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that's what we put on our, uh, on our control panel. It usually gets up to around 57, 58. Uh, and that's really, we're just concerned about any diacetyl. We want to clean that up. Uh, I think a lot of times people forget to do that. Um, and they just, crash or they set on a 
on a tight schedule. It's very tough when you're a production brewery, but uh, we let the yeast tell us when it's time to, to bump, not the calendar. Um, and, and that's just about getting gravity readings, understanding uh, your beer. Uh, we like to finish around one eight two Play-Doh, uh, and it starts around 10-7. So in those 10 days, it'll jump down to like three Play-Doh pretty quickly. And then we'll bump it up uh, for about four days till we uh, feel that it's past, you know, sensory testing. Sure. Uh, and then we'll slowly crash it down to 40, uh, and it sits there for eight to 10 weeks. 10 weeks if I have my way. Uh, eight weeks if the taproom manager has his way because we need it on tap. Uh, <laughs> what, what's uh, you know, well, what's the difference? I mean, obviously, you you <laughs> you're a small brewery brewing small batches of this stuff, and the thought of brewing lager like that on a seven barrel system and letting it then sit in tanks for eight to ten weeks, I mean, just sounds like uh, you know to borrow the Jester King term, commercial suicide. Yeah. Um, you know, there has to be um, a reason for letting it tie up your equipment to, for that kind of time. Um, you know, and I'm sure you, I guess you've tasted it at four weeks, you've tasted it at six weeks. You know, what, what does the beer then, you know, as it conditions, how does it change, you know, in that kind of extended time? Yeah, we really see it's clean up its sulfur quite a bit. It's which is kind of interesting that late into the game, but it cleans it up quite a bit to where it's like. Uh, and there's not a lot of just, yeast left in the you know in the no, beer at that point either. You've already you no. know, pulled yeast off of it. Yeah, and, and and I think any yeast is a lot of yeast. Anyone who puts a, a who's bottle conditioned anything wrong way or something knows that yeast can still operate. Uh, we do also. I guess I've mentioned. Uh, when we bump it up in temp for the diastole rest, we do also spund it at that point. Uh, there's a uh, couple of reasons. One, to try to help with carbonation practices on the backside. Um, but then it also is free, free CO2. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nice when you can get things that have that word free in front of it when you're operating a brewery. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it really does clean up quite a bit. Uh, there is times, I won't lie, that there is probably some ego involved where I, I say this is a 10-week lager, and if you taste it at 7, it probably would pass all sensory tasting. But I can tell you pretty confidently that four weeks in, that beer does not taste the same. Um, and then it's certainly uh, that particular yeast. I just talked Imperial up a lot, but it, we do have clarity problems with it sometimes. Uh, and uh, we do not filter Uh well, we cannot filter. We don't have one. Uh, so um, making sure that all that yeast does have time to drop out. Um, it would be nice to have, in theory, have a horizontal to be able to speed that process up. But even then, I mean, the difference in taste from four to seven is very difficult to communicate through uh, through headphones without having a glass in front of you. But there is one. Trust me. What uh, if you know, try to try to stretch your language here? Like how yeah. how would you describe it? You know the sensory, yeah. like even even the feel, because yeah. it may not even be a flavor piece as much no, as it's just kind of a you know a textural uh, kind of piece. I mean, it's kind of it's it's a little grainy, almost a little. Uh, yeah, it's just green is definitely a word I, we use. It's just mm. it's just it's green. It's 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 there um right right but uh yeah it's it's you want some of that bready characteristic but you also don't want that sweetness of bread so just making sure that that has time to clean up i know that wasn't very uh 
podcast worthy, but it's the that's truth. all right. That's all. Right. That's all right. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I had to get at least no. one dad dad joke. No, in I the, was uh, super. I was super excited that uh, Chris Williams, when he read the results, said the gold medal goes to all right, all right, all right. So maybe <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, an hour north of us, saw it and. How do you finish the beer then at that that end of fermentation? Uh, do you need to, you know, does that spunding produce enough carbonation? Do you bump it up? And then are there any other steps that you take then to kind of polish and uh, and finish the beer? Yeah, so um, we do generally get quite a bit of uh, carbonation out of that spunding, um, which is fantastic uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, we believe it's just better bubbles. Um, but uh, then we'll, we, we transfer extremely slow. Uh, so when we transfer into our bright, uh, we take our time. Um, we kind of have a phrase that we spent eight weeks on this. We can wait eight more hours. Uh, so it's not an eight hour transfer. Don't care. <laughs> Thank God. No, <laughs> no, no. Seven but barrel we, take eight hours. Oof. <laughs> no, no. We, uh, but we do, it is a whole day when we transfer 15 barrels over into our, into our bright tank. It's, uh, but then. We will put a little bit of gas onto it. We try to keep as much of the head pressure during transfer as possible. We'll put a little bit of gas after we check it with the ZOM. Uh, we usually have to put a little bit more. We're usually at like 2-2 two, two when we get into the bright tank. Uh, we want it to be at 2-5, two, 2-5-5. Five, two, five, five. Uh, we have not – we do package it. We do package it into uh, – we have a canning line as well, but we sell all those cans out of our tap room. We have found that 2-5-5 five, five works for us. Uh and we don't see that we lose uh, carbonation on our can side. Obviously, on the draft side, we shouldn't be losing anything. But I've heard nightmares of people who have a beer that's reading 255 in the bright tank, um, and then it's like 23 in the can. So we're, we're lucky. I, I don't want to jinx that. but uh, So we find that that's good there. What do you guys package with? Uh, we have a Wild Goose Gosling. Uh, we have actually one of the very first ones off the line. Um, it was supposed to be tied to a CBC party that was here in San Antonio. That never happened. Oh, uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I remember when we came down there, it was uh, right around the time or right before CBC was supposed to have happened in San Antonio. You guys had built a new cold box for it. You'd been stocking up uh, packaging yeah. beer getting everything ready for this that then just kind of fell apart. I mean, what a, what a crushing blow for, for all the breweries in San Antonio. Yeah. It's uh we were joking a couple of days ago that 2022 hasn't had much competition, but it's by far the best year of the decade. Um, with the world beer, <laughs> Cup, with the world beer cup medal, GABF medal. And I've got my second daughter who will arrive in a couple of weeks here. So like this year is way better than two years ago. Sure, sure. Uh, well, let, let's kind of zoom out and just talk about you know lager program in general. As you've been brewing, you know more lagers, you know from in a small brew house in a you know with some tightly constrained you know equipment uh, concerns. What do you think have been some of the, like really the biggest quality points? You know that that have made some of the biggest differences. Um, you know, in your whole entire broader lager program. Yeah, I mean, I think that. It definitely applies to our lager program mostly, but uh, in general, our brewery is just um, know your own constraints. So we talked about I can't do step mashes, so I have to have to work with what I got. Um, and we found that focusing on quality ingredients and fresher ingredients uh, and not trying to save a couple pennies uh, really makes a difference in the final product. Uh, and I will say yeast is one of those ingredients, obviously. Um, so you talk with a lot of brewers who say yeast is so expensive, but it, you need the proper 
yeast pitch uh, to be able to, to get it. We unfortunately don't have the ability uh, due to scheduling that we get to reuse a lot of yeast, but our Pilsner yeast, we do go four or five gins deep on. Um, we try to get cell counts on it as much as we can, uh, but there is uh, there is some some time constraints at times. Uh, you know, how do you then, you know, pitch or you weight volume, you know, what, what's uh, the, what's the methodology so, there? So we're, we're going by weight into a brink. Uh, and then we will actually, anytime we do a 15 barrel batch, we brew a one barrel batch of it two days before. Uh, and then we pitch that brink into the one barrel fermenter, uh, let it go two days, try to get it as much, uh, close to high crowds as possible. And then we rack that onto the 15 barrels. Uh, so kind of saves us some time, uh, money to be able to propagate our own yeast in house here. Uh, but, and again, that's, that's the toys we have. We have a one barrel system that we get to use. Um, so if you have anything like that, I highly recommend trying to get creative with what you have. What a pain in the ass process, Dustin, to go brew a one barrel batch just for your yeast prop and then step that up to, I mean, your, I mean it's, <laughs> It's it's not uh it's not God like bless you. God it's bless not like you. that's all we're doing that day. Uh it's generally on a packaging day, it's in the background, we're brewing a one barrel batch of all right, and then uh and then uh we, we do that on a Friday and then like it's a perfect example and then we'll come in on Monday and we'll do the double batch. Uh yeah, there is a lot of uh there's a lot of things that we do here that don't make sense to an outsider, I'll say that. Uh but it is uh sometimes it's nice to get some feedback from from GABF or, or from you guys or anyone that says, Hey, these things, they make a difference sometimes. So for sure, for sure. Well, Hey, you know, whatever you're doing is working clearly with medals, both at world beer cup and GABF to show for it. And of course a gold medal in international yeah. style Pilsner for all right. All right. All right. Hey, congrats on that. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me for this little uh, segment of the podcast. It's uh, it's always great to see. You and it's great to, to yeah. talk about how that process has been working for you. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Well, uh, I can't wait to see what you come up with next on the as this small little logger program uh, continues to to gain more legs. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Up next, we'll talk about cold IPA, but first, balancing barley and hops is your expertise. Food grade lubricant is theirs. When it comes to what you do, you're an expert. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. They'll work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your operation. To learn more, visit clarionlubricants.com slash foodgrade. Clarion Lubricants, the experts that experts trust. For the second segment of our GABF Gold episode, uh, joining me from Virginia is Adrian Garrett, head brewer for Precarious Beer Project. Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Thanks very much, my friend. I'm stoked to be here. Uh, you guys, uh, you guys have been sending us some beer this year, and so we grew more familiar with Precarious and have been impressed with what you all, what you all are doing. Um, so you were already uh, kind of on the radar, and then I saw. Uh, you know, at that GABF medal ceremony uh, a yeah. couple weeks ago, that uh, you guys won a gold medal for uh, Polar Bear's Toes, a uh, cold IPA. And I thought, you know what? It'd be fun to talk to you guys about how you are uh, pushing in this quote unquote experimental IPA category. Right, doesn't really right. seem that experimental, but uh, hey, you enter uh, the right beer in the right category and you can uh, you find a way to win. You're um, right. 
You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the beers that I've had from you guys have definitely pushed that kind of creative spectrum. Uh, you all are, are you know, figuring out a you brewing creatively uh, across a number of different styles and uh, not afraid to take some chances. So I thought it might be interesting to hop on this conversation and get an idea about how you all decided to design and uh, build and brew and package a uh, compelling cold IPA. So talk to me a little bit about this process behind it. Uh, you know, what, what got you thinking about cold IPA and uh, where'd you start looking at inspiration for how you were going to design a recipe for your, for yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So the cold IPA kind of came about, I think we were, we were looking for something that, like I said, we're always pushing the boundaries or like you had said, we're, we're trying to push the boundaries and be creative. And, and for a long time I had worked for in a production facility where I had set recipes and things and like precarious kind of allowed me to take the muzzle off and, you know, really where, get sorry, crazy. Where did you work so, before this? Where'd um, work I worked for Aleworks Brewing Company, another brewery okay. here in, in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, sure. and they're great. I've, you know, I have a lot of respect for them and I wouldn't be where I am right now without great brewmasters that taught me, you know what I mean? So big shout well, out to Jeff Logan. Pumpkin beer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A great one too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, uh, sure. I don't do any pumpkin beers now for that reason, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so we kind of wanted to pumpkin be different. PTSD there. Oh dude, a ton of it. Yeah. Double pumpkins for like, man, months and months out of the year will drive sure. you, drive you anybody bonkers. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's a great beer and, it, and rightfully so. I mean, they make it well and it does well. So, uh, but no, we were looking to do something a little bit different. I mean, um, I think, uh, in the brewing industry now, a lot of brewers and industry people are, are leaning back towards lagers and, um, you know, more crisp, clean, uh, clear beer, which is great. Uh, big fan of clear beer. Um, and we wanted to approach something Shout that out had, to clear beer. And you're yeah, right. For sure. Well, the right. funny thing is it never went away. You're right. Um, it never did. It was, it's always been, you know, when we do reader surveys and when you look at most breweries sales sheets, like it's never, never not been the top seller, you know, in terms of IPA, Absolutely. it's just, there was a perception for a while that it was on the outs. Uh, it was a misplaced perception. Um, so there you go. Yeah. A hundred percent, man. And it, it, and hey, I'm not hating on hazy IPAs or or not clear beer by any means. They all course, have their place. Um, beer is beer, and I love all of them. That's why I'm in the industry doing what I'm doing. Um, but I I'm a big fan of lagers and you know clear, crisp, juicy like kind of West Coast IPAs. You know, maybe like a hybrid of the sorts. You know, and um, but we really wanted to make something that was at the end of the day ultimately drinkable. Um, I had one of my brewers who was a good friend of mine actually left uh, Precarious and went over to Ten Barrel. Uh, in Oregon. Um, and we were kind of like looking, you know, he was like, oh man, we'd seen, uh, we were talking about doing that cold IPA, like Wayfinder obviously has their cold IPA, sure. which was at the time the standard, I would assume, you know, I'm, it's crazy to me that, <laughs> that I'm here now talking about this, but you know, I did a lot of research on, on that recipe and, and luckily enough, their brewmaster was pretty transparent and things about, you know, he didn't tell us exactly how to do it, but he gave me a good idea of what I thought one should be. Um, and then just really went, uh, uh, along with trying to build a really crispy, nice, clean malt bill, uh, lager malt bill, uh, to showcase these hops. I didn't want it to get in the way. Um, all as while being that drinkable, super drinkable beer that we're, we've known to come and love, uh, with every type of lager that you can think of. So, uh, what I did was I started with just a, a basic Pilsen, uh, and a puff Jasmine rice malt bill with a little bit of dextrin, or you could use Carafoam if you'd like. Um, and what that does, the Jasmine, uh, puff Jasmine rice really, really brought out an interesting floral, 
note that kind of accentuated mm. with the hops, I feel, uh, but also brought that dryness really heavy. You know, like it's crispy, it's clean. Our rice lagers are very dry, uh, finish out at a lower gravity. Um, so, you know, that's kind of in my head. I'm like, oh man, that sounds awesome. Like nice and dry and crisp, but still I wanted it to have that big hot punch. So essentially what we did is, is there a we, specific Pilsner malt that uh, you lean to for something uh, yeah, like this? I do. Um, I'm, I use Fireman a lot. Uh, that's yeah. basically what I've gone in and, and until recently, Just regular you know, Fireman pills. Fireman pills. Yeah. Or the Bohemian floor malted is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I found like the aromatics on that too is very floral and bright. And, and I like using that for more, um, I'd say like lagers that I'm really trying to bring that malt, like Pilsners and things where I want that, that floral, like malt pills and backbone, you know, just to kind of flow with the hops where it gets herbal and floral and things like that. So I felt like that it made it really drinkable. Um, but yeah, the Vireman Pilsen and then Puff Jasmine Rice, which I think is, I can't even remember, maybe Grain Millers or something like that. I'd have to go back mm. on my order and check. Uh, and then the Vireman Carafoam or uh, Dextrin. Um, and that's what how I much started r- with. Yeah, how much rice do you, uh, you know, an adjunct to use in this uh, this kind of recipe compared to the pills? It was, I can tell you a percentage here. I actually have it all written down. <laughs> Um, so it's actually 20, about 20% rice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anywhere from 20 to 25 is what I was trying to stick with. And I tend to do that essentially for my rice lagers anyway. So, uh, which is my favorite style of lager. So again, I was kind of feeling very comfortable with going forward with the style, uh, of cold IPA or experimental IPA. Um, and then just a touch of, like I said, the Carafoam or Dextrin, which is about just 4% uh, and the rest 76% is the Pilsen. Yeah, um, I know. I know Kevin and, and Wayfinder. I mean, their their big point about uh, you know cold IPA is that adjunct is necessary. You know, right. It's pretty. It's a key point of cold IPA, and if you're not using that kind of adjunct, and and they're little, you know, it can it could doesn't have to be rice. Obviously, no, could be corn, something right, like corn, well. some something to just uh, you know to kind of uh, push that leanness uh, right. and lightness of it. Um, you know, and, and so it, it does seem to be you know one of those kind of key dividing factors is is it a cold IPA you know um, more so than just the the fermentation piece and right. it looks like you know you're trying to accomplish that but also with some some flavor uh, you know impact from the rice itself absolutely like I you can use toasted rice uh, I I am actually drinking a another variant of a cold IPA that I just been you know you toy with different hops and toy with different methods and and I just use regular toasted rice in this one and it is still very dry and crushable. Um, but it, I think that the Jasmine rice, if you can stand to spend a little bit extra buck, like it's worth it, man. It really brings, uh, it really just kind of brings the depth to the beer, um, which is, I was looking for as well. And, and it works. <laughs> I guess so, um, so I'm really stoked on that and I'll continue to keep at least that recipe. will stay with that puff Jasmine rice. I'm really excited on it. So. Well, it um, clearly paid off uh, okay for yeah, you guys on this yeah. one. Sure, sure. Yeah, so where do you great. go? Where do you go after uh, you know after the grist spill? So then, actually, I'm uh, my I'm working with my really kind of a West Coast hop build. Uh, so we've got some CTZ at First Wart. Big fan of First Wart hopping. Uh, sure. If I'm going to add a 60 minute edition, it's just a First Wart edition. Uh, that that longer amount of time that it gets to steep without that really volatile breakup of throwing it in at 212. Uh, really helps to make a more well-rounded bitter beer. Uh, in my personal opinion, like I said, no hate on 60-minute drops, but you know, I think that that works. And it, and it made it uh, for, like I said, we really wanted this beer to be ultimately drinkable and balance uh, bitter, 
bitterness balance with any type of IPA nowadays, I think is, is where you make your money because it's a lot of, this is too bitter for me, or, you know, this sure. isn't hoppy enough, uh, from different consumers or whatever, you know? And so I kind of just wanted it to be balanced first and foremost. Um, so we did the first four hiding hopping. some of that bitterness in there becomes the key too, right? right like absolutely. you need it there, but you also don't want it to be so obvious to people that they can perceive it. Right. You know, I, I love those beers where you're, you're drinking and it's like, you know, that's, that's nicely bitter and other people are drinking, Oh, it's so juicy. Like, right. Yeah. Perfect. The brewer exactly. accomplished what they're looking for here because they got the bitterness and people don't realize what it's doing, you know, exactly. uh, unless you are one of those that just, you know, drinks and studies this like we do. Right. Um, you know, but, but getting that kind of smooth quality to where it can kind of hide in the background and accomplish the technical thing that needs to accomplish without becoming a major flavor component that starts distracting people, you know, that, that becomes that key. And I, that's interesting. That first word thing, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. And you're just yeah. doing that with T90s and, uh, mm -hmm. and not a more advanced hop product of some. No, just regular T90 yeah. pellets. And I, I use like CTZ. So, you know, you get that pine resin, you get some citrus, yeah. you get some dank. And man, when I, I remember first, uh, when I got into the industry, it was probably like 2013, uh, just like a cellarman. And I remember all IPAs were that, that dank, piney, citrusy, resinous, like very, you know, that, that was it. Um, so I kind of, and, and I enjoy West Coast IPA. So that's kind of, you know, where I was going with this one too. And then, um, behind that really that first wart and then, uh, a cascade edition at 10 minutes. And then we run with some Amarillo. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're Man. keeping the seas, keeping the C words going, baby. I'm liking the throwback yeah. approach here. Absolutely. I, that's the thing is I, that's what I was used to drinking, you know, when I got into this and I'm like, man, if I want a really crispy, like, you know, drink ultimately drinkable beer, that it's like, it is the brewer's beer. The brewer's IPA is what I keep telling myself. Like, this is what the brewers want an IPA to be, you know, because we love lagers. We love light beers. We want to drink more of them, more than one. <laughs> and this kind of pays homage to that, all while having this really intricate, like, hot bill and really juicy, um, like I said, resinous, like, kind of piney. Uh, so it's 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 fun, man. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's fitting. It fits that that you know, kind of Kevin Davy more West Coast than West Coast ideal. Right. And right. of course, their retro gold cold IPA uh, you oh, know, was crazy. one of our top scores. Uh, you know, in our IPA issue earlier this year. And I think you're right. There's something there. Like we have this nostalgia, this uh, pining nostalgia for uh, you know, up, for man. that. that um, but but thrown through and recast. You know, I think that's the important thing here. We we can channel that nostalgic idea of classic IPA, but through a better handling of hops, a better technique for extracting, you know, for getting that kind of flavor and impact out of them in a way to kind of smooth you know, and tie together, uh, you know, those kinds of flavors. So then, uh, so oh, absolutely. You, you then pop into, uh, Amarillo, you said, yeah. The so, and then our whirlpool. So I also do like a one ninety. uh, I call it cool pool. So I whirlpool everything at 190 degrees, uh, just to, again, uh, kind of take away the volatile, you know, hot breakdown and just bring out more aromatics a lot. That's very common for new England IPAs is a one eighty sure. one ninety whirlpool. So, but you know, I kind of dialed in my bitterness. Is it worth units. the trouble? Cause I mean, you know, going <laughs> yeah. through that process is a pain in the ass. It is a pain in the ass. Um, we've got it kind of dialed into where it doesn't really take too much time off of what doesn't take too much time off of our brew day or add too much time to our brew day, should I say? Um, so, but I wouldn't see why not when you're going with the heavier West coast, like you, when that's your, what you want is your end result. I mean, I don't see why you couldn't just dump them whirlpool. 
Um, this is just, like I said, personally, what we did, because we're kind of used to doing that for our, we do uh, Kung Fu Kittens, which is our New England IPA, and we crank that out probably more than any other beer that would be, per se, I guess, our core beer. Um, so the guys are super used to doing 190 cool pool and they'll just, Hey man, if I throw it on the brew sheet, they're like, Oh, normal, uh, which is great. <laughs> but for other yeah. breweries, I actually just spoke to, uh, uh, one of my homies, um, that works at a brewery towards Richmond and he was trying to work on a new England recipe and, um, kind of more of a randomly put together brew system, you know, uh, kind of Frankenstein. So I was having sure. to walk him through like, Hey, this is what I do. You could probably do it as well. Uh, but yeah, so we'll go into a 190 uh, Whirlpool with Amarillo and Mosaic. Um, and just to really bring again, like that had that juicy, earthy, you know what I mean, citrusy, without being too like just fruit juice like Citra or, you know, anything like that. So, um, and to keep it decidedly West Coast. Um, sure, sure. Now, in terms of, let's talk about, I want to break down you mm-hmm. know, how those hops then, you know, how much hops total you're putting in, mm-hmm. you know, about how much is, is hitting at each point. Um, you know, but from the start, what's the general IBU goal? And I know this one's a hard one to count, you know, to, to get because, yeah. um, you're going to get contributions all along the way there um, right. in ways that are going to be harder to kind of quantify just through software itself. Absolutely. So, um, my first word addition is probably going to be where I'm making most, that's where I'm building most of my IBUs into the recipe. And that's yeah. only going to take, you know, it's a couple pounds of CTZ, two pounds of CTZ, um, how big first is the batch size? Uh, this is a 10 barrel. 10 barrel okay. uh, so two pounds um, of CTZ at first wart. And that given me about 22 IBUs. Yeah. Um, and then my 10 minute addition is five and a half pounds of Cascade. And that's bumping it up to, I would say, probably probably 30 IBUs. in total with my uh, Whirlpool, you know, you don't get too many in there. But I'd say we're probably finishing at like 30, 35 IBUs total. So it's not incredibly I like. It, I bet it's higher than that. If it should be, yeah, pool. yeah. It should be probably, higher, at least but... perceptibly speaking. Uh, right, right. Um, you know, it's again the calculated stuff tends to not always, uh, you know, test out with uh, you know the way that stuff actually tastes from mm. a perceptive standpoint, or and even even from a testing standpoint, I've you know found that more brewers are seeing actual IBUs contributed through the whirlpool. Even yeah, right. So, well, so that's kind says, of right. Yeah. I, and and usually if I put zero in my software, is like my boil time, it's not giving me any IBUs. Like, nope, none there. So I'll, I'll tend to like, you know, I'd like, oh, it's five minutes or whatever and just see like, yeah. oh, about how much would that be? And then I'll, I'll take that into consideration when I'm um, dialing in my amount of whirlpool hops. Um, and that's just probably me being crazy. Some people are going to sure. listen to this and be like, this kid's nuts. But yeah, I mean, hey, I also, man, I, beer is fun to me. Making beer sure. is fun. Drinking beer is fun. Uh, experimenting with this stuff is fun. So, you know, I just. So, how much thing goes day. into the Whirlpool and how long do you, let, you Whirlpool for? Um, um, I'll Whirlpool for uh, 20 minutes. Uh, 20 okay. minute Whirlpool so at one Still a relatively short Whirlpool then. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's, um, let's see, I've got 16 and a half pounds okay. in my Whirlpool. Um, so total poundage of hops is, let's see, two pounds, first wort, uh, CTZ, five and a half, uh, cascade at 10 minutes. And then my 16 pounds in the whirlpool. Yep. And that's the Amarillo mosaic blend at 190 for 20 minutes. Cool, cool. Yeah, it doesn't man. add up to even bags, but, uh, Hey, you know, you'll know. Uh... Yeah. Well, <laughs> these guys, 
Right. We'll figure it out. I was going to say, that's what I wrote on here. Usually we'll sure. adjust if we need to. If I'm like, they're like, yo, I got 0.2 pounds in this bag. I'm like, just throw it in, bro. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's in the whirlpool, yeah, sure. we're golden, man. So, Sure. Sure. So, so, you know, you, you know, you're whirlpooling, um, you knock out, let's talk about fermentation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from that point. Um, going forward with our fermentation, obviously we wanted to have uh, lager yeast. I looked into some different lager yeasts and, uh, the one that we use, Probably the most, if I'm not brewing like a traditionally German lager or anything like that, is just 3470. Uh, sure. It's really clean. It ferments clean. It'll ferment fast at warmer temperatures too, which we, you know, ex- through experimenting, we figured out. So I'll pitch the uh, 3470, just one brick of it in uh, 10 barrels and ferment at 65. So we're fer- fermenting it warm. Um, and with that, it, it, it rips, man. Uh, she yeah. takes off pretty quick. And it uh, it dries out really really nice again, so we're looking for that as well, that high attenuation. And I'll get probably eighty to eighty five percent attenuation. So it's you know she's doing her thing in there. Um, yeah. And then towards my end of fermentation, we will dry hop and bung it once she's done. So we'll just keep you know kind of get that bioactivity going in there too towards the end, uh, which I would say is last third. Uh, If I'm starting at, let's see, where am I at? Starting at about 15 and a half Play-Doh, um, around like four or five, we'll go ahead and dry hop that sucker and let it finish it out. Um, and then let that sit also, for a yeah. couple of days. Yeah. Now you also do, uh, you know, lager ferment, you know, lager fermentations mm-hmm. at colder temperatures, mm-hmm. you know, with, with lager yeast, you know, from a, a sensory standpoint, how's that warmer fermentation? You know, what do you see from that fermentation that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily see, you know, and are there any concerns that you all pay attention to during that warmer, uh, lager fermentation process? Right. Absolutely. Lager yeast. Yeah. Right. Um, my biggest thing, uh, going forward with fermenting lager yeast, uh, and trying to, to, mess with it temperature wise was just putting off any like off flavors diacetyl or anything like that uh and also we we this is pretty heavily hopped too so hop creep was a worry of mine i've experienced that through my career just different different ipas we wanted to do and things and and uh i was lucky enough to spend some of my time at aleworks in the lab so i ran pcrs and stuff and and was able to kind of put those things into perspective i think and that really helps me like going forward um, looking at like hop creep and things like that and what I can do to prevent that in our beers. Um, but I do actually, the one thing that I do to prevent at least any diacetyl or, um, production through fermentation and, uh, otherwise is we use ALDC. So that is the enzyme that pretty much, um, passes up the diacetyl production and fermentation. Uh, and that comes from Murphy and sons, I want to say, um, uh, in the UK and it's great. And I only use about, you can use about 20 mils per 10 barrels, uh, mm-hmm. and it comes in a big bottle so that it's not very expensive. Uh, right. and that's been really, really great on, uh, heavily dry hot beers, like not have any weird production or any off flavors or anything like that. Uh, and again with lagers, uh, if you ever have any issues with that, that's a good way to, a good small addition, uh, to help kind of mitigate that issue. Uh, just an as insurance well policy, as right? Insure, right. As well as I always do, you know, my diacetyl rests and things like that as well. And I tend to let my loggers logger for probably longer than I need to. But hey, uh, 
Clear is good. Well, you're right? fermenting cold IPA at your diacetyl rest temperature. Right, so, exactly. Uh, it's weird. Know, hey, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it, it was super weird. <laughs> and I've done, I think this one I bumped it down to 62. Uh, okay. Just a different recipe that we've had. It's called Dipped in Ice. Uh, it's a different cold IPA. So, um, And this one is still, it's incredibly drinkable. I don't get any flavors or anything different than the other one at 65 aside from i think obviously 65 ripped a little faster than than sure, 62 sure. but um yeah when you they say go- fast what's that mean what's the curve of fermentation oh, look like, like on the- oh man this thing's probably cranking in less than two weeks i would give it yeah 10 days it was yeah ready to rock it's pretty crazy yeah um and like i said i've only gotten to do them a handful of times polar i think i've only brewed this is like the third or fourth time We've done cold IPA. So, again, for Polar Bear to go as far as it did and to win, I was just blown away. Uh, I knew it was good, but I didn't know it was that good. <laughs> uh, so, I was so stoked. I try, and I, I try to be humble, too. Again, I, I love beer. I love making beer. Sure. Uh, there's so much good beer in the industry right now, too. It's yeah. it's pretty incredible uh, to be able to even say I made a you know a mark in it is, is beyond me. So, I'm sure, very stoked. Sure, sure. There's not only a lot more players in the world in the world of craft beer. There's also the top of those best producers. That exactly. number has gotten bigger and bigger. Well, you know for sure, for sure. Well, let's talk about dry hopping. Um, mm-hmm. You know what is what's the dry hop look like on this? And of course, you mentioned dry hopping and then then uh, bunging the tanks. You yep. know, um, is there a method to your dry hopping? Um, no. Essentially, I'll just try to keep it so that so yeah. that the guys aren't having to bust open uh, like bags and pour into buckets. So just try to keep it as clean as possible. So sure. I'm usually doing um, like anywhere between two and three pounds per barrel on my dry hops. Mm-hmm. Um, so for this one, is just two pounds per barrel. Uh, the dry hop is eleven pounds mosaic, eleven pounds amarillo. Um, at the right. towards the end of fermentation and let that um, bioactivity of the yeast still kind of doing its thing to help break down those hops and. It and actually, I find that you know getting that biotransformation obviously makes that beer so much more punchy and hoppy and and brings that dankness. Um, uh, but yeah, so, that's essentially all we've you done. Know, with then you know, then at what point then are you dropping that dry hop in? Or you know, are you what you know a couple points away from or a point or two away from? Uh, yeah, my final, final gravity. gravity. Yeah, for sure. So if I'm finishing out, like just for instance, this one's going to start at fifteen and a half or sixteen, and it says my estimated final gravity is about three so if we're anywhere from like five and a half five ish and that thing's bloop 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 i'll go ahead and dry hop it you know with a kind of with a slower steady bubble i'll go ahead and dry hop and that'll get it bubbling again obviously you're displacing some of that co2 uh moving some of that yeast around it is the bubble method man so you're you're (laughs) not necessarily uh counting yeast cells no man uh, i'm tasting every day uh, okay. I taste every day, very palate driven brewery. Like I said, yeah. uh, I am, I, I don't claim to be the most scientific brewer in the whole world. Um, I, you know, and I kind of like that. I, T- I always take it into, and, yeah, yeah, dude, hey, yeah. we're having fun. Um, and it's, sure. it, I, I definitely do a lot of research. I'm not saying I'm not course, scientific and doing anything. I, I don't think I would have gotten here had that not been the, <laughs> been the, uh, case, but but I do tend to um, – I tweak my recipes based on how we feel about them. We sit around and drink them and talk about them. And, hey, I feel like we could have done this. Hey, I feel like we could have done that. Um, and I, I pay hyper attention to the beers that are in the tanks every day. Obviously, I'm, I'm tasting and seeing about how far they are in fermentation. But, uh, you know, 
as a rule of thumb with my dry hops, if I'm going to try and do like a bio hopping, uh, it would be, like I'd say, towards this two thirds of the fermentation is done toward that last third. Like I said, if I'm finishing at two and a half to three, probably five Play-Doh, five and a half Play-Doh, I'm go ahead and drop that dry hop and just finishing out too. Cause moving, displacing that CO2, yeah. moving that yeast, getting that yeast kind of a little bit backed up in suspension some more. Um, and eating those sugars that are left over, uh, that's worked out really well for us, at least with these cold IPAs. Um, and bringing and just that a sing- just a single charge of dry hop. Then. Yeah, just one dry hop. Yeah. Did you do any kind of bubbling or research or anything like that to get nope. the stuff moving? No. No. Just dry hopped it. Put some pressure. Let it bung itself. You know what I mean? Bung it. Let it build up pressure and push those hops down. Um, and then finish it out for a couple days. Like I said, I'll keep going. I'll let it go for probably five days after that and tasting it and making sure it's not like you know obviously if it builds up too much pressure i'll dump some pressure off and sure. things, but yeah um going about five days and then crashing it um letting it sit a couple days dump hops off of it uh every day until we package it um just because with that bio hop it's still very green uh yeah, going on yeah. through the whole thing so it takes a couple of days uh to really get everything dropped down once you crash the beer um and a couple of dumps of the cone to get it yeah. all figured out how much you know bio transformation do you really get with thirty four seventy and in hops in that kind of scenario? I'm just, I'm just asking theoretically. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just I'm just curious. So you know, I have from your noticed, perspective, like compared to something where you might not do that. Right. Absolutely. I think. Um, and now I have done both ways. Uh, actually, that one polar bear toenails is bio hopped, and this one is not. Um, and I do think it's more punchy. I think that hmm. you get that. It's going to sound crazy, but it they 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 taste the hops taste more dank and as as opposed to herbal. Does that make sense? Huh. Yeah, like I, they they're just more punchy and forward and tropical and like have these really interesting aromatics. And not that this one isn't interesting, but it it's not as forward. I would think you know what I mean. It's more like herbal and floral uh, as opposed to that dank, punchy, like really in your face. Um, and even green to a certain extent, you know what I mean? Like, so, but there's something to this style thing, right? Something to this. Yes. It's it's definitely pushing some of that kind of, you know, tropical, funky, funky, you know, uh, almost sulfurous tropical character, which is different than just, you know, typical lager sulfur. Um, you know, but a lot of those tropical fruits have that kind of sulfur component, Mm. you know, funkiness to them. And it kind of pushes it into that, that direction. If I'm, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, I, and well, the whole thiol thing, I'm oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, 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 the whole ahead. thiol research is awesome too, man. We've been having a lot of fun playing with different thiolized yeast strains and things too. So that'll hopefully, uh, I'll get up on that experimental stage, uh, a different way next year. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So. Sure. Sure. Is there any, uh, how do you, how do you finish the beer from there? I imagine you probably have to add a little bit of CO2 into it. You know, how, uh, mm-hmm. where do you try to hit for like finished carbonation? Um, finished carbonation for this, I did want it to be just a tad bit higher than what our normal, like, or I guess our new England IPAs obviously are a lot softer. Um, but I try to shoot for about two, six, five volumes, um, on damn near everything, unless it's a lager, it's like two, seven. Um, but between two, six, two, six, five on the Zom, yeah, we're Zomming 10 barrel baby. (laughs) But, um, yeah, 2.65 volume seems to really, um, hit that oh man it's just drinkable it's crisp it hits all the right parts of your tongue to bring out the right flavors um and aromatics and it, it seems 
that that's the the spot. Now we also can't go too higher, too much higher than that because our cannon line starts right. wigging out. But sure, but sure. um, yeah, two six five is is usually my target for all of these like cold IPAs or West Coast IPAs, um, lagers, things like that. So. Well, let's pull back a little bit. I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious if you're looking at it, the big picture of this beer, um, you know, in the scope of this kind of competition. Clearly, as you guys were tasting your beers and considering what you wanted to enter into the competition, you know, you're thinking about what you might have a chance in mm-hmm. finding the right place, the right categories for some of these beers. Uh, I don't know if you're brewing for specific categories or with that in mind, you know, from the you know the, the outset. But you know, when you when you look at it. You know, what do you think some of those key pieces are that define or produce the kind of quality that is elevating that beer, you know, to the point where it was resonating so deeply with, uh, you know, a group of peer professional yeah. brewer judges in a competition like this? What do you what do you think some of those like, you know, key pieces are, um, you know, that, that helped it, uh, you know, be successful? Um. That's a great question. I, I've been thinking about it, honestly, since it happened. Like, you know, just looking at such a large category, I mean, 130 beers or something like that, like, and I'm walking around tasting other people's IPAs, I'm just blown away. But I, I will Naturally, say... Naturally, if you figured it out, you're like, you want to find a way to duplicate that, right? Right, like, right exactly. How can right. I do this? Yeah, <laughs> I got to do this every single time, right? Right. So, um, yeah, I think what played a huge factor um, in this was uh, we do to some extent uh, a couple beers that we we did have a couple beers excuse me that we knew we wanted to brew for gabf uh that they had done well uh in previous gabf submissions um and i had tweaked the recipes uh things that we really felt great about that were different enough that we could stand out um and i think that's what helped with this one too the experimental ipa um Obviously, cold IPA is becoming more popular, you know, as time goes, but I felt really comfortable. Um, like I said, I haven't got to brew them too much. I mean, like I said, maybe four times, uh, four iterations, maybe five, uh, if you include some lab brews trying to figure it out. But uh, I felt really comfortable with Polar Bear's Toenails uh, just due to its its feedback here. Um, but I think one thing that really helped is it was brilliantly bright and clear, Um Again, clear beer for the win. I said I think we're going, we're going. You know, hazy beer's got its place, but when you look at you know a, a flight of beers and you've got one that's just so brilliantly bright and clear and and just it's it's amazing. And, and first and foremost, you drink with your eyes, right? So when you see that, you know, get handed to you in your flight, you're like, holy shit, man, this thing is it's a magnifying glass. Like it's crazy. So. I think that really, really helped. And we do biofine it. We don't filter. So I did biofine it. Um, and at, I do, uh, we'll biofine when we crash. Um, so I won't biofine. I used to biofine in the bright tank, but I found that I was getting a little bit of head retention issues, it seemed like. Uh, so I, I kind of backed that up. And once we crashed our beers, we'll go ahead and add our biofine to it then and let that do its thing. But it was brilliantly bright. I think that um, the carbonation level too, we carved it a little bit higher. It was very crisp and clean, uh, great lacing. Um, and like I said, that biotransformation just had those hops really ripping, man. It was juicy. It was still had that piney bite to it, and the bitterness was all in the right places. 
uh, more so like a citrus rind bitterness and pithiness. Yeah. Um, so that really helped, I think, like round it out too and make it more approachable as opposed to abrasive like we were speaking of earlier. Uh, but yeah, that kind of fruit bitterness or like orange peel bitterness is really what I think carried it uh, and, and made it more balanced. Um, now, I will attribute some of that, I think, coming from that first wort CTZ, man, the uh, that first wort just made the hops, uh, like you said, it's not so in your face. It's really balanced. You can feel it throughout the whole process. So it's, um, I think that definitely helped really the balance of the beer. But super bright. Um, it was carbonated really well, nice and crispy, uh, but not like too, you know, not like yeah. champagne, obviously, too effervescent or anything. It was right on the money. Um, and I will say we we partnered up with our friends at um, Port City in Virginia to transfer to transport our beer to said competition. Yeah, um, yeah. They have a cold uh, reefer truck. We kept <laughs> it up there. I packaged it the day yeah. before. Uh, we kept it up there cold. We got it to them cold. They kept it cold. They moved it cold. It was, it, I mean, until it got to Denver, the damn thing was cold. And it was, yeah. you know, and, and with that too, like, I really think that made a world of difference. And and shout out to them for making that process of of shipping our beers this year and, and previous years uh, great and, and easy. And they, I know it takes a lot of work for them to do that, but it makes a difference. Uh, and you can see from them too. I mean, they they have a great resume of GABF yeah. wins. And I think that has something to do with it, man. Um, uh, and not saying that it, it, it's hard. It's probably expensive. Uh, you know, it, it's tough to do. But I do think that makes a ton of differences just keeping that beer, you know, not having any temperature variations. And once right. you get it packaged, you know, you know exactly where it's going. It gets there in a timely matter, uh, manner um, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I think that was a big, big deal this year. Absolutely. That's the last mile right there that makes all the difference in the world. Right. You can make the best beer, but if uh, if your packaging isn't on point and the transportation process uh, hammers that beer, then uh, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors. It's no, tough, man, and that's a hard pill to swallow, too. When you know yeah. in your heart that you've brewed a great beer and, you yeah. know, and it's yeah. just you're like you're so confident in it, too. But, um, no, this time it paid off because that's how we felt when, when we, we packaged the beer. We all, you know, again— we did brew a couple beers for the competition, uh, Polar Bears being one of them. So it was in a nice, timely fashion that we had it done and figured out. Um, uh, but going forward, our, our other beer that meddled wasn't brewed for competition. It was just honestly the other American lager that we had on. And yeah. we really all enjoyed it uh, and wanted to put it in a different category. We had won for some European lagers in the past. Um, uh, and so, yeah, why not try it in American lager? And it did well. But like I said, for instance, one of them was brewed for competition with that hoppiness. Right, I right. think that matters. Um, any type of those hoppy beers, hop forward IPAs or anything, you want those to be as hyper fresh as possible. I for mean, sure. that's, that can be a world of difference between you and the next guy. So um, I think that had and also just checking our DO levels too. obviously DO levels in your canning right. line. Uh, you want to be capping on foam and all those good things that everybody knows to do. Uh, it's just, again, being hyper focused on that and. Um, we weighed out all of our cans too. So I'm making sure everything's full, uh, to spec and stuff like that. So those are just little things in my mind, technically that I was looking at, uh, going forward, but I, this is all things that mattered at the end of the day. So, sure, um, sure. 
Yeah. Well, Adrian, I appreciate you uh, sharing the perspective from Precarious on uh, how you all have brewed this gold-winning uh, cold IPA. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about uh, Precarious, where do they find you guys? Um, man, you can check us out at precariousbeer.com. Uh, you can also follow us on our Instagram, uh, Facebook at Precarious Beer. Um, and you can find us here in Colonial Williamsburg. Actually, we're only a street over from Dog Street, which is Duke of Gloucester Street, the famous Colonial Williamsburg walk. <laughs> Everybody dresses up and does that stuff. But we've got a really cool modern brewery in the middle of a colonial kind of area. So it's fun. Uh, we got games. Quite, we got quite the juxtaposition yeah. right there. Oh, it is. But the the visitors, we get visitors from all over because you know they come to do the tourist thing, and they just. Whether they know that we're here or they stumble upon us, um, it's a great place to be. And I've, you know, tried to build our our tap list to, you know, there needs to be something for everybody. I don't want anybody sure. walking out the door because they can't find something to drink. So, if you're ever in Colonial Williamsburg, man, stop by and see us. Uh, the brewery's right smack, basically in the middle of the beer hall. So, you guys can come back and and say hello or chat it up. Um, feel free, man. We'd love to have you. Oh, you keep winning uh, gold medals like this. We're uh, we're gonna have to make the visit out there. Hey, man, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do my best. Uh, I'll do my very best. I promise that. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining me. Cheers. Cheers, friend. Hope you've enjoyed these smaller windows into how Brewers are Brewing Award winning beers out there in the great United States of America and the great American Beer Festival. We're going to do this again next week with a couple more conversations with more brewers. Um, thanks for joining in. AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. Since 1847, raw malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. As always, go to beerbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know that this content matters to you. Support what we do so we can keep bringing you great conversations like these week after week, uh, year after year. Uh, man, we've been doing it for a while here. Uh, appreciate your support, uh, however you all choose to express that. Catch you next week. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.